Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Well, good evening, everybody. How you doing? All right. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, That was the best introduction. I'm sorry. I know, I know you guys probably do that all the time. Uh, thank you, Pastor Best. So on the, uh, on the plan of the service for the week, uh, I got a little insight last night. Somebody laid down their copy of everything that's happening, all the, all the speakers and the transitions and all the things. And I saw for tonight's service, it said, best intro, Jay Shug. And I was like, <laughs> Well, yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. I need the best intro. And so, uh, Pastor Best, thank you uh, so much, man. It's good to be with you uh, tonight. And uh, man, I want to start by first thanking the Lord Jesus Christ and, and secondly thanking Pastor Sam uh, for the privilege uh, and opportunity to be here. Uh, I'm very humbled uh, to be a part of Mission Focus. Uh, I'm thankful for Mission Focus. We've had the opportunity in the past to come to several, and I'm blessed this year. My wife, Allie, is here, and my two daughters are here, and so Allie's uh, on the front row, but I won't make her raise her hand because she'll, she's already cut her eyes at me, so we'll just move on from that. But, but it is amazing to have my family uh, with me, and uh, this is an amazing event, an amazing place, and uh, I'm thankful for your church and your leaders. Uh, in this room are a lot of my personal heroes, and I mean that. Men that, men that I look to as examples of faithfulness and that are just about the mission, and so it's a, it's a humbling thing to be here tonight with you. And so uh, with that being said, I want to pray. I I need to pray for me. I need to pray for you. And would you pray for me as well as we bow our heads together? Father, uh, Lord, we we really need you. And Father, without hearing from you and experiencing you and responding to you, this will just be another night. Father, I pray that your word does the work. God, it's sufficient. I know it is. Thank you for this place, God. Thank you for all the the prayer and the planning and all the things that have happened. Thank you for the leaders of this church, God. You've raised up an amazing church at MBT. I pray that tonight, uh, Lord, we're challenged from your word. God, we're encouraged from it and that you would speak to us uh, and give us a heart for the mission. Uh, We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about me as I get going tonight, uh, just so that you know uh, who is, is talking to you. Uh, again, my name is Jay Shug. I'm privileged to pastor Community Fellowship Baptist Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, I received Christ at the age of 21, and so I grew up in L.A. And for those of you that don't know, that's Lower Alabama. I grew up in Lower Alabama, and in high school, my family relocated to North Alabama, And uh, after graduating high school and going to college, my best friend in college shared Christ with me at the age of 21, and it radically transformed my life. Uh, It redirected my life. At the time, he was going to a church called Decatur Baptist Church, and I think we have some DBC people 
uh, in the room tonight, and, and uh, man, I'm blessed to be a part of that church. That was my home church, my only church, and I was there for 14 years. I got connected in the college ministry, got discipled, had the opportunity to serve in that ministry for many years, met my wife in that ministry. That's why it's the greatest ministry ever, and, and so, man, we, and actually, there's, there's people in this room tonight that were a part of that college ministry back in the day, man, and and it's just amazing to see what God's done through that ministry, uh, not only in Decatur, but all over the world. And so for 14 years, that was my home church. And uh, in 2011, God opened the door for us to take a church in Huntsville, Alabama, which is about 30 minutes uh, east of Decatur. And, and by God's grace, man, the last 12 years, uh, we've, we've been at Community Fellowship Baptist Church, trusting God for big things, seeing God do amazing things, uh, and growing me even more. Uh, I, would, I would say that God has used that church to help me become the pastor that I need to be. And I'm very, very thankful for that church. And I normally don't cry this much. And so this is a little awkward because you have a lot of eyeballs looking at me right now. And, uh, and so my people back home are like, yeah, you do cry that much. So, so anyways, I, I'm, I'm humbled to be here tonight. Uh, this evening, the message is entitled, The Character That Qualifies Your Calling. Or it could also be called the proving that precedes your participation. Or it could be called the manner of life that makes the mission. You say, which one is it? Well, whichever one you want, it doesn't matter. They're all good, and I, I felt like I couldn't land on one specific one. And, and so tonight we're going to talk about the character that qualifies our calling. And, and many times in our churches, man, Living Faith Fellowship churches, we have a methodology of missions that we understand. And it, it goes something like this. It goes something like, we believe in, in key men placed in key cities with key tools. And through that methodology of missions, what the result should be and is many times is that disciples and churches are multiplied, right? That, that in, in some form or fashion, many of us as Living Faith Fellowship Churches, this is kind of a methodology of missions that we share, key men in key cities with key tools that results in disciples and churches being multiplied. And, and listen, if, if you want to talk about key cities, right? If you spend any time in the Bible, you go through the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles, and you see how God moved the gospel from city to city, and from region to region, and from country to country. And man, it's amazing to read that in the book of Acts, right? And it's fun to pray about that working out in our own lives and in our own mission fields and, and trusting God for big things and, and planning, man, where is it that God would have us plant a church next? Where is the next place that the gospel needs to go? What's the next outreach opportunity. We, we look for those doors of utterance that only God can open for us. And, and the cool thing about Mission Focus is, is that you're going to hear how God is moving in the world. You're, you're going to hear about key places in the, in the world where God is moving, and, and that ought to pique your interest. That ought to, to draw your heart to the global mission and so you're going to hear about places like Nairobi, Kenya, or, or Zambia, Africa, or Ireland, or, or Boston, or other places. And, and so in your notes, look, key cities are the where of missions. And God opens those doors of utterance to preach the gospel, right? And, and, and as, again, as we study the book of Acts, we can see that play out, and again, in our own life. And, and sometimes that worked out really well in the book of Acts, right? Places like Corinth, God said there was much people in this city, many people came to Christ. And, and Paul was able to stay there for about 18 months. 
and other places in the book of Acts, man, there was a lot of hostility to the gospel where Paul's ministry was shortened, places like Thessalonica, where despite the persecution and even Paul's shortened stay, man, there was a remnant that remained, and there was a church that was planted. And, and so key cities are the where of missions, but then we have these things that are key tools, right? And, and what makes one of the unique things about our fellowship that makes it unique is the fact that we believe in a faith-based view of Scripture, right? We have a biblical authority. We believe we hold in our hand the very words of God. We believe that, right? That, that's a key tool. That's a key authority that, that we hold dear to, and we believe that we have the certainty of God's words, and these are preserved words, words by God in the English language in a King James Bible. But we also have things like biblical discipleship, right? We, we believe in a biblical philosophy of discipleship, and I'm thankful for that. By God's grace, I'm a, a product of that. I got saved at the age of 21. I had no clue. I'd never read the Bible, hadn't been to church much. If you asked me to open the Bible to any book, I would have had no clue what, what you're talking about. And yet through a, a process of biblical discipleship, an older man in our church took me and helped me know how to walk with Christ. And, and then things like discipleship too, and ministry tools and training, and leadership training in my, my local church, uh, other tools of biblical training and education, those things helped me learn how to labor in the field. And so those key tools are the how of missions. That's how we do the mission. And I think many of us understand that, right? There's a biblical way to do missions, and, and there's certainly unbiblical ways to do missions. And, and so we want to be biblical in our missional approach. But tonight, I want to focus on this idea of key men, and, and specifically key men and women. And here's the notes, because key men and women are the who, of missions. You see, you see, they are the who of missions. And, and here's the point. Look, without key men and women, no matter how perfect the tools are and no, no matter how effective the strategy is to reach key cities, listen, without key men and women, the mission will not be accomplished. And that's where we come in. That's where you come in. God is looking for key men and key women to surrender to this mission, and, and every one of us ought to do inventory this week as we, as we sit and learn, man, we have to ask ourselves the question, where do we, where do I fit personally in this mission? Now, if you've got a Bible tonight, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and, and if you're familiar with your Bible, you're already thinking, man, what in the world are you going to preach about missions out of this chapter? And if you're not familiar with your Bible, praise the Lord, you won't be disappointed. I mean, you have no clue. You have no context of what's in that chapter. And so, and so I found when you have zero expectations, you don't get disappointed as easily. And so there you go. And so it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is actually giving instruction to the churches to take a collection, an offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem. And, and, and I want to just take a, a few minutes to set the context of this chapter before we actually deep dive in it, okay? And, and so as we set the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the first thing that we're going to see is this collection for the saints, this collection for the saints. And, and we actually see that, that Paul has previously mentioned this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, 
As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, listen, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. And, and so Paul is giving this instruction for, for an offering to be taken among all the Gentile churches to go back and help the church at Jerusalem that is experiencing difficulty. We know from Romans chapter 15 that this was fulfilled in Romans 15 verses 25 to 27. Let, let me just read it. I think it's on the screen. Yep. Paul says, but now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. And it pleased them verily, and their debtors they are, for if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. And, and, and so Paul's just making the point, man, all the Gentile churches benefited from the church at Jerusalem. And they benefited because God used the, the Jewish apostles and, and the scriptures that were the oracles of God entrusted to the Jews. God used the Jews to help get all of the benefits to the Gentile churches. And so he's just saying, hey, listen, you have been a beneficiary of spiritual things from that church at Jerusalem. It's your duty, it's your responsibility to minister back to them in carnal things, and, and what he's talking about, no offense, the, the carnal thing is just money. They need your help. And, and so I, we're not going to run this rabbit trail, but, but listen, if you're a partaker of spiritual things at whatever church you're a part of, if you've been a beneficiary of that in your local church, and God's using your local church to impact your spiritual growth, well, you, need to get, you, get, you need to get carnally invested back in that thing. You need to get carnally invested back. Okay, I, I didn't know that, that landed or not. It's just money. Now, this is going to be a really important connection to what we'll talk about tonight. And, and the reason why is because many times we actually value money and treat money more important than we treat the ministry. And, and, and Paul is about to paint a beautiful picture in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so let's talk about it, man. We see this collection for the saints. And, and then number two, we see the, the commendation of the Macedonians. And so as Paul is given this instruction to the churches, listen, listen, he commends one group in particular. He's like, man, hey, there's one group that's already done this, and the way they did it, you should take note of the way they did it. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, brings us to our chapter tonight, verse 1. Paul says, moreover, brethren, we do you to wit by the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in great trial of affliction in the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And so, and so Paul commends this, these Macedonians. He, he says, these guys were broke. 
Man, they were poor, and yet they participated in this offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem. They didn't minister out of their abundance. They actually ministered out of their poverty, and and they didn't have an excuse for not being a part of it. They actually just said, we don't have much, but what what we have, we want to give to God. We want to trust God with that. They, They had a willingness and listen, God can do a lot with a willing man or a willing woman. I think many times our problem isn't lack of training. Our problem in, in context of the mission isn't a lack of the biblical tools or the key tools. Our, our, our problem many times isn't an effective strategy because all those things are in place. But listen, many times our problem is a willingness, a lack of willingness to fully get invested in the things of God. And we look at what we don't have instead of what we do have. And and yet God shows us over and over again, if you'll just be willing, I'll take what you've got, and I'll do something that you couldn't even do with it yourself. God does that over and over. And so they gave of themselves first, and they gave of their resources second. Now here's what's beautiful about this, and it brings us a little more into focus. Number three, we see that this example was a connection back to Christ himself. The way that the Macedonians gave actually illustrated the way Christ himself gave. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, okay, listen, ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And so God's word says that the Macedonians' willingness to give, it actually illustrated the grace of God. It actually illustrated the person of Jesus Christ himself. He gave it all. He became poor so that we could be rich. And man, that is the gospel, right? Philippians chapter 2 tells us that that's the mind that Christ had. Philippians 2 and verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found fashioned as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, Christ became poor so that we could become rich. And listen, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you understand that statement. You you understand how rich you are because of what Christ gave. I think your pastor says this all the time. I've heard him say it in the past. I don't know if he still says it. But he used to say, we're rich. We are are rich. And and we're rich as a fellowship, for sure. You're, you're, You're rich and, and all the blessings and benefits that we enjoy in ministry and the relationships and the fellowship, well, listen, we're rich because of Christ. It, it's, it's the old acronym, right? The old God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. And, and God gave his grace in the person of Jesus Christ. God used, listen, a qualified man to bring his grace to us. And we're rich. And, and, and we need to understand that greater than any material possession, what we have in Christ is the truest riches. I mean, Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 talks about this mystery that is Christ in us. And in verse 27, it says in Colossians 1 
And verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've got abundant riches in the person of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7 says that we have this treasure, and the treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Do we understand how rich we are? Now, now listen, man, I don't know if we understand it. That means we don't need anything else. We're already rich. We have everything that we need in Christ. Ephesians 2 and verse 7 says that these riches are the exceeding riches of His grace. Ephesians 3 and verse 8 says that they are unsearchable riches of Christ. God delivered His grace through a faithful man named Jesus Christ who became poor to make us rich. You say, what does that have to do with 2 Corinthians 8? Well, what's interesting in 2 Corinthians 8 is that there were some churches that made themselves poor so that they could make someone else rich. And what's beautiful about that, that parallel is that in that offering, there had to be qualified men to take that gift to the church of Jerusalem. You see, there had to be someone that was approved. There had to be someone that had character to take this unspeakable, unamountable gift to its intended audience. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 3, Paul again said, When I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality to Jerusalem. And so... The thing I want to focus on tonight for us is, lastly, number four, is the character with characters. The characters with character. So, so what we're going to look at tonight is, who is it that was qualified to take this offering to the saints at Jerusalem? Who is it that had the, the character that could be entrusted with these riches to make sure it got to where it was supposed to go and all of it got there? And that there would be no blame for the ministry. Who is it that God is going to use to minister His grace to other people? And that's our key question for tonight. Listen, as we make that parallel out of 2 Corinthians 8, the question for us is, who can God use to deliver His grace to those in need? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8 verses 16 to 24, and I believe through this passage, God reveals some characters with character that we must take note of. And so look at verse 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 16. Paul says, but thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation, being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we've sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but, but who also was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declared of your ready mind, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance, which is ministered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of who? Men. 
For we have not sent, for, and we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent, listen, in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you, whether any do inquire Titus, he's my partner and fellow helper concerning you, or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. You see, God used qualified men to carry out a mission of grace, to minister abundant riches through churches that made themselves poor to minister to someone in need. That sounds like missions to me. And it it sounds like missions in giving financially, but it also sounds like the mission of getting the gospel to the world. Who is God going to use to do that? Well, God gives us a few men that he notes in this passage. Number one, God uses people who take action based on God's word. And we see this in Titus. He's the, he's the first man that is mentioned. We see, we see God using people who take action based on God's word. You see, Titus of verse 17 says that he accepted the exhortation. So Titus was a man of reception. What that means is when he heard the call, Titus was a man that responded. Titus was a man that took initiative. He took action. And exhortation, that's what it is. It's a call to respond. According to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, that's a third part of what preaching is, right? I mean, we're called to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season. We're to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Listen, what is the last thing that God called you to? And are you doing it? Man, are you like Titus? Are you a man ready to hear God's word and, and tremble at it to the point of obedience? Isaiah 66 and verse 2 says, For all those things my hand hath made, and all those things which have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that's poor and of a contrite spirit, listen, and trembleth at my word. Man, those are the people God looks for. He looks for people that are receptive to his word. They're ready to hear it and to tremble at it and then to take action on it. It becomes authoritative in their life. They don't live out their life just preferentially based on on maybe the style of the preacher or the style of the sermon or if they got all their blanks filled in or not. I hope you get your blanks filled in, by the way, because I'm I'm kind of a blank dude myself and like, ugh, I'm going to try not to leave you hanging. But listen, all of those things are secondary to, man, what does God say? And, and if God says it, do I have ears to hear it? Do I tremble at his word? Titus heard Paul's exhortation. And then secondly, he was a man of initiative because he took action. He actually immediately responded. Paul said that Titus was more forward he, of his own accord, went to the Corinthians. I mean, I mean he made the effort. He, he endeavored to do something. And that's who God uses, man. You know, as a pastor, uh, before I was a pastor, man, I, I, was, I was a Christian, man, and I'm still a Christian, and I was just a church member. And, and, I, and I always wanted to be in a position that whatever God put in front of me, I wanted just to take the next step. And man, for, for, for me, again, not, not growing up in church, not understanding church culture, not understanding things, man, sometimes the next step was, hey, we're having a small group activity, you need to bring chips. 
I, I tried to hear that exhortation and not be the idiot that sh- showed up without bringing chips. Can I, I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't have said that. Not be the moron not showing up. Okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm digging a hole. Yeah, okay, yeah. I didn't want to be the guy that left somebody hungry because there need to be chips at the small group activity. And I, I wanted to be the guy that, man, when, when the opportunity came from my leaders, whatever, whatever the opportunity was, and even as hard as it was, I wanted to just, oh, take the step. I remember the first time I got asked to share my testimony. I think I asked why. Like, why, why do you want me to share my testimony at a small group? And, and the answer was, well, because you're saved, right? And I'm like, yeah, I know I'm saved, yeah. So why don't you share that with other people? I was like, I'm really scared to do that. <laughs> okay, and, and man, it was just the next step, right? It was hearing what was available through my leaders and, and, and being, being obedient to that, just taking the next step. Psalm 119 and verse 59 says, the psalmist says, I thought on my ways and I turned my feet unto thy testimonies. You see, you see, we have a, a beautiful thing in our fellowship. Man, we have churches that are, are beautiful to be a part of, and, and man, there's so many blessings and benefits, but man, we have to take the initiative to get moving in the right direction to the mission. Uh, man, it can be disheartening as a leader. It can be disheartening as even a pastor to have to seemingly drag people along the way. Man, it, it breaks the heart. And as much as it breaks a, a human man's heart, man, can I tell you, it breaks the Lord's heart even more. That his children wouldn't be willing to just follow his voice. Man, what's the last thing God spoke to you about? And are you doing that? The question wasn't, what's the last thing you learned? Because somehow we've replaced virtue with knowledge. And God says we're to add to our faith virtue and follow the Lord in obedience to what we know. And then God will work out all the knowledge that we need. And so God uses people who take action based on God's word. Listen, is that you? Is that you? Do you respond rightly to God's word? Do I respond rightly to God's word? Do I, do I fully obey in faith what it is that God has told me? Well, that's going to lead you to be useful for the mission. Number two, God uses people who are proficient in the gospel. And I want you to look at verse 18, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse, verse 18. And so, and so he mentions Titus by name. And then in verse 18, he says, And we have sent with him the brother. And, and the name is not given, but it says of this brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout, listen, all the churches. And, and, so, and so a second man that's qualified to bring a carnal gift of just money to people in need, well, he had to be a man of, of action, and he had to be a man that was proficient in the gospel. You're saying, oh, it's just money. Who cares? God cares. God cares. God's looking for character. And so Titus, man, Titus was mentioned by name, but this brother isn't. Maybe it's Silas. A lot of people speculate that this is Silas. And if it is Silas, he would have been Paul's ministry partner in multiple churches from Acts chapter 15 forward. He would have been with Paul in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Man, this this thing of being proficient in the gospel, it has to become a reality for every one of us as a believer in Christ. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, when Paul talks about his son in the faith, Timothy, one of the things that, that he commends him is, in verse 22, he says, You know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he had served with me in the gospel. And man, listen, I, I don't know how it is up here. What is this, the Midwest? We call this the Midwest. I just want to be geographically uh, correct. I told you from Alabama, so just give me grace. But man, listen, in the South, in the South, Christians in the South, churches in the South, you know how it is, man. The guest speaker that's away from home can air out all the dirty laundry. So that's what's about to happen. Man, Christians in the South want to do anything that's called ministry except preach the gospel. Man, we'll, we'll serve, we'll clean, we'll teach, we'll do anything that isn't preaching the gospel that's quote-unquote labeled ministry, and yet even to get this offering of carnal things that people made themselves poor to accomplish to be a blessing to someone else, an, an illustration of the gospel, even in that carnal gift. Man, the qualified men to take it were men that were proficient in the gospel. Man, we have to be proficient in the gospel and I don't know what other ministry there is. You say the ministry of discipleship. Well, listen, discipleship is rooted in evangelism. You can't have one without the other. You can't, you can't split that coin in half. We have to get back to the gospel. And man, we can't talk about the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16 says, Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. You see, being proficient in the gospel actually qualifies us for the mission. I'm not sure sometimes what we think the mission is. If it's not centered around the gospel, it's probably the wrong mission. God, God said even to take this carnal gift, these men had to be proficient in the gospel. Isn't that amazing? It's just an offering. Well, sometimes we we get that thing of the ministry so confused and, and so distorted. Number three, God uses people who are confirmed by the churches. Verse 19, and man, as we just kind of walk through this and continue, he, he gives a little more information about this brother. God uses people who are confirmed by the churches. And so this same brother, he says, not only that, not only is this guy's praise in the gospel, but who also of the churches were, were chosen of the churches to travel with us, listen, with this grace. Do you see it? There's that connection right back to Christ, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. So not only is this brother proficient in the gospel and has praise because of that, but listen, the churches, plural, had chosen him to participate in the mission. In other words, he wasn't just known by his church. This man was known by multiple churches. And again, if it is Silas or one of Paul's ministry partners that were with him for any amount of time, that person would have been there with Paul preaching and planting 
those churches with Paul. And he would have been known in the churches, right? And can I just tell you again, there, there is something special about the Living Faith Fellowship. There is something special about in, in this place of, of, of fellowship of like-minded churches that we kind of run into each other a good bit. And that's a good thing. It actually gives us credibility with each other, right? It, it actually gives us uh, 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 the qualification, if you will. Now, listen, I am pro-local church, and, and every local church has the authority and the autonomy to send, to send whomever God leads them to send, wherever God leads to send them. And yet, because of this brother's impact and influence in the churches, when the mission had a need, all the churches said, no doubt, this is the dude. Send that guy. He is proficient in the gospel, and everybody here knows it. He, he's a faithful man. You know, the Thessalonians had reputation among the churches. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. You, you see, the Thessalonian church had reputation among the other churches for their patience and their faith and their persecution and tribulation. And that's the beautiful thing about a fellowship. And we know what's happening in each other's lives. We can pray for each other. We can encourage one another. And we can rejoice that when there's a need, man, there are people ready. There are people qualified and ready. Aquila and Priscilla also had reputation among the churches. When, when Paul admonished Priscilla and Aquila as his helpers in Christ, and he gave thanks for them in Romans chapter 16. He said, not only do I give thanks for them, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Man, they had that, that power couple, man, of the New Testament. Man, they had reputation among the churches. So God help us to have that reputation. Would, would, would other churches even know who I am? Would other churches be impacted by my ministry? And man, we're, we're blessed to have a fellowship where, where, where people from Midtown, man, their ministry actually impacts our church. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for Decatur Baptist whose ministry impacts our church. I'm praying in some small way the ministry of community fellowship impacts your church, that God uses it for his glory. That's the beautiful thing about what God, what, what God does through our fellowship, man. And, and these are the people that God uses. Number four, and this is where we'll spend the probably the bulk of our remaining time, is that God uses people who are blameless and honest in the sight of God and man. Look at verse 20. Paul says, But avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. You see, you see, the abundance of this offering, what it was worth, and what, what it cost to give, couldn't be just given to any man. It had to be a blameless man. It had to be an honest man. And this man had to have blamelessness and honesty both in the sight of God and men. And, and again, can I just give you the parallel? The mission is so much more valuable. And the message of the gospel is so much more of riches than any physical offering. 
And the men and women that God is going to use that are qualified to take that to the world are going to be men and women of character with blamelessness and honesty, both before God and man. I mean, that, that's a powerful characteristic. And yet that's the thing that God looks at. Paul says, we want to avoid this, that no man should blame us. I mean, blame is something that should be avoided at all costs. And that's not some legalistic standard. It's a biblical principle. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, giving none offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Man, we're called to a standard of blamelessness because the mission is so valuable and the gospel is so valuable. And the riches that we have in Christ are so valuable that it has to be handled with men and women of character. And it doesn't mean that we have to have some kind of sinless perfection, man, because we all fail. We'll all fail at some point in this area. Even Peter fell, right? Galatians chapter 2, do you remember that, that when Peter was come to Antioch, Paul withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. His character compromised the mission, and Paul had to address it. He had to have a hard conversation. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a hard conversation in ministry? You guys don't have those up here? Okay. You want to have one now? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. I've been on the receiving end of those things, man, and they, they're, they're hard, but they're needful. Why? Because of the value of the mission and because of the value of the gospel. Listen, this thing of blamelessness, it, it, it's required in your notes. Listen, it's required in Christians' lives. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15 says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Your testimony is going to impact your ability to minister. And as a Christian, man, you can, you can come to church and you can say the right things and do the right things. And, and listen, I get it. But man, as soon as you go out into the field where the mission has to be accomplished, who you are is really going to come out. And if you really believe this stuff or not, and if you're the same person at work as you are at church, or the same student you are in class that you are at church, or the same husband that you are at home that you are at church, you see, character comes out, and blamelessness is required. It's required in bishops. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 says, A bishop then must be blameless. And I know some of you in this room, man, you surrendered to a call of God on your life specifically for ministry, that, that whether God is going to put you on the mission field or God's going to put you in full-time service to Him as a pastor or ministry leader, man, you've surrendered to that call. You know that call of God is on your life. There are some things that, that are absolutely required. There are things that must be a part of our lives. Unfortunately, in our churches, man, in, in our culture of Christianity of Laodicea, we've replaced must be with maybe. Maybe. This issue of blamelessness and honesty is, has become a maybe in some ministries and in some churches, and yet God's standard has never changed. It's required in bishops. Number three, it's required in deacons. First Timothy 3 and verse 10, let these first be proved and let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. And the second thing that God gives us in that passage is that we're called to be honest. 
We're, we're to provide for honest things. And, and contextually, I think you can prove that, man, just work faithfully to provide for what you need and, and, and walk in a way that honors Christ and is honest. The, the opposite of honest things are dishonest things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, okay, seeing, therefore seeing we have this ministry, and the ministry is the ministry of reconciliation, as, we, as we've received mercy, we faint not, but we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And we ought to know how to do ministry honestly. And maybe it's just me, and maybe it's just the South. And, and if you guys ever come, you'll see kind of a whacked-out Christian culture in the South. Because, because people will, will do church, and they won't even do that honestly. <laughs> They'll lie, cheat, and steal, all in the name of, quote-unquote, ministry. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> you can't do that. That's not the way that you can do it. That's not the man that God uses. You can't be dishonest and walking in craftiness and handling God's word deceitfully and somehow be qualified to, to carry out the mission. Man, God's, God's standards never changed. So, so just the admonition for us is, man, we're, we're called to work honestly and to walk honestly. Those are the things as we, we study Scripture, man. We, we see it throughout Scripture that that our work ethic and our walk with Christ ought to be based in honesty. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11 says, See that you study to be quiet and do your own business and work with your own hands as we commanded you that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, that you may have lack of nothing. You know, we, we have a small church, but we believe in you know, ordaining pastors and ordaining leaders, and we have one other pastor, and we have men that have been ordained in the office of deacon. And, and one of the things that we, we try to do in that process is say, okay, we, we know who these guys are. We think we know at church. We think we know. But man, if we're about to install a man into an ordained office, we're going to call this dude's boss. We're going to call his family. We're going to get some outside testimony of who this man is because they're without our four walls. They're on the outside. And is this man a man of integrity and honesty? And does he walk honestly? And does he work honestly? Or does he steal from his company? Does he clock in and do a sermon all day long instead of laboring? Nobody, nobody does that, right? Okay. If you do that, stop doing that. And serve whomever it is that's paying you to do your job by doing your job. Is that, is that okay to say? Yeah, yeah. work honestly, because however you work in the secular place is going to be how you do ministry. Honesty is an issue of the heart. Luke chapter 8 and verse 15, when he, when he gives the parable of the seed and the sower, he talks about the good ground being an honest and good heart. And God tells us in Philippians 4, 8, that honest things should be the focus of our minds. Man, we're, we're to think on honest things, whatsoever things are honest and just and pure, lovely and of good report. If there be any virtue, any praise, think on these things. And here's why. Because we're to do those things not only in the sight of the Lord, but in the sight of men. And the reason why is because God is watching. We just sang a song that God's watching, right? 
Maybe we just sang that, that God sees it all. We can't hide from him. His light illuminates everything about us. God is watching. And so in the sight of God, we should speak Christ. But listen, men are also watching. Men are also watching. And that means that in in the eyes of even lost men, we need to provide things honest. Man does look on the outward appearance, and many times we look at that passage in, in 1 Samuel and we say, well, yeah, man's limited, he can't see the heart and all these things, and, and there is an inverse to that, that man actually does look on the outside appearance. And that because man looks on the outside appearance, we are to give an honest reflection of Christ-like character that's rooted in a life of personal worship before the Lord a right relationship in his word, a right prayer life, a right worship life that manifests itself out honestly before men. Because listen, men are watching. And men are the goal of missions. Man, they're the goal. They're the target. And we don't want to put ourselves behind in the opportunity. Number five, very quickly, God uses people who are proven diligent in many things. Look at verse 22. This is who God uses. Verse 22, we have sent with them our brother. And so now we're introduced to a third person in this team. We have Titus. We have the one brother whose praise is in the gospel. And then we have another brother. And it says of this man of whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things. So, so man, God's going to prove you out with many things. Talk's cheap in church, man. Talk's cheap. And proving takes time. And whatever opportunity is in front of you, you need to be proven as diligent in that area. And for some of you, man, maybe that's discipleship. You need to be proven that you can biblically follow that process of discipleship, grow in a right relationship with God. Some of you, that may be discipleship too or, or ministry tools and training, whatever it looks like in your church. Will you be diligent, not to just sign off on the class, but actually... Be diligent with what you've been entrusted with. LFBI, my goodness, what a resource. It takes diligence. It takes diligence. It takes purpose. And it's a proving ground of whether or not you really have character. God talks a lot about the diligent man versus the slothful man in Proverbs. Pastor James did a, James DeCoker did a men's conference for us a couple months ago, and he, he contrasted these two men, the diligent man and the slothful man. And, and we don't have the time tonight, but man in the Proverbs, it goes through all these characteristics of the diligent man. Proverbs 12, 24 says that that diligent man is going to bear rule. And that, that's what we're called to do in our homes, and that's what we're called to do in the church. It qualifies us. A diligent man is the one that bears rule. It says in Proverbs 13 and verse 4 that the soul of the diligent man shall be made fat. It says the thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness in Proverbs 21. Proverbs 22 and verse 29, See thou a man diligent in his business, he shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. Man, it's a man that's proven over and over to be diligent. You know, in, David, in David's life, and, and again, for time's sake, man, but man, in David's life, in 1 Samuel 17, many of you know the story, there's this giant Goliath, and, and nobody in Israel is, is, you know, full of faith enough to go deal with this giant. And David gets full of faith and is like, okay, I'm going to go shut that guy's mouth by taking it off his neck, and, you know, we're going to fix this problem. And so, and so Saul 
Saul wants to help him, and by, by giving him his armor, right? And he says, hey, you're going to go into a battle, and here's what you need. And he gives him this armor, and David puts it on and takes it right back off, and he says, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to battle with this because I haven't proved them. I haven't proved this armor. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, was willing to be proven to not take of the king's diet for 10 days. You say, what does that all mean for me? Well, it means that we don't go to battle with unproven armor, and we don't go into the battle of ministry with unproven men. We don't go to the battle with unproven men. We shouldn't, because a lot of people are going to get hurt. And the ministry is more valuable than that. And then the last wing, and we're done, man. Look, number, number six is this. God uses people who are validated by their current leaders. And, and so right at the end of this thing, Paul gives one more strong validation that these men that I'm recommending to you, they're the real deal. He, he says, hey, listen, I know there's probably going to be questions because when Titus and these two, these two dudes show up, somebody's probably going to be like, who, who are they again? And why do they have this tremendous, abundant gift? And who sent them? And what authority do they have to do this? Well, well, Paul gives his validation to them. Verse 23, whether any do inquire Titus, he's my partner and fellow helper concerning you or our brethren be inquired of, the other two dudes. They are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. And so in that, in that final thing, man, Paul validates Titus as his partner and fellow helper. Titus would later become a pastor in Crete. We know that from the book of Titus, that God left him there and Paul left him there to ordain elders in every city. You know why, you know why he could be left to do that? Because he'd been proven. And Paul also validates the brethren. And so, man, listen, here's the, here's the question for us as we close. And the thing that we have to consider, man, do I have the character that would qualify my calling? In other words, do I have what it takes to actually be trusted with the ministry? Would, would my character enable my participation or actually prevent it? And listen, don't use that as an excuse for sin because if some of you are in this room tonight or watching online, you may say, hey, you know what? Yeah, uh, okay, I'm not any of those things. Well, that's no excuse. That's no excuse to keep living in sin or running from the problem. Actually, it's actually an opportunity to be like Titus and to hear the exhortation and say, okay, yeah, actually there's some things in my life that I need to reconcile back to the Lord. Listen, God has unsearchable riches in Christ. And there's a need in this world to get those riches to the lost world. But God's going to use the right people to do it. And God wants to use you. He wants to use you. Let's be men and women of character. Amen. Let me pray for us. Pastor Bess and the worship team can come. Father, thank you, God, for your word. I pray, God, just in the midst of stammering lips, Father, you and your Holy Spirit have, have given us what we need. Father, we trust you. Thank you. I pray your Holy Spirit does the work as the word has done the work. We give you glory. We ask it in Christ Jesus' name. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.